Well, so it's been a month uh, since we talked about what happened in the garden. Today we're going to sort of continue talking about that. Last time we really focused on what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. This time we're going to focus on what happened to us <laughs> at that time. Uh, so um, what we uh, what, that 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 does require a little bit of a review from last time, and uh, the main thing we ended up doing was coming up with sort of a definition of sin and death based on our understanding of Genesis chapter 3. And we defined sin as uh, turning from reliance upon God to reliance on self, to trust one's own judgment over God's word uh, that you could call idolatry. And then uh, the resulting disobedience what happens if I trust my judgment over God's word is I disobey God uh, and so in that way Adam and Eve sort of broke they broke fellowship with God They and that's a disruption of that vertical relationship that ends up uh, disrupting all their horizontal relationships as well so Right as soon as they sin, they look at each other and they suddenly need to put clothes on. They need to cover. They need. They don't trust each other. Their intimacy is broken. There's a break of trust. And so we just we call it, we said death is alienation from God. What uh, is alienation? Oh, thank you. I, alienation is uh, separation of relationship. Uh, so I'm. Uh, Isolated from someone. Uh, that's alienation. Reconciliation is the uh, the opposite. Is is reconciliation is recovery from alienation. So uh, Bob and I are friends. If we became alienated, that would mean we're not friends anymore. We we're separated from each other. There's a break in our fellowship. <clears throat> and so death is alienation from God and uh, the, uh, well it's kind of like this if you alienate yourself from God you die because God is the source of life <clears throat> also death is an alienation from one another uh, so for example when someone dies we are separated from that person are we no longer have an active fellowship with that person. It's also the disintegration of our humanity. So uh, God's pronouncement to Adam, well, Adam and Eve, really, in, in Genesis chapter 3 is, you came from dust, you will go back to dust. There's a, a disintegration of the person, even a physical disintegration. So, that concept of sin and death in terms of uh, uh, fellowship, or the breaking of fellowship, is important to what we're going to talk about this time. And this time we're going to talk about the problem of original sin. There's uh, the 
one of the principal doctrines of the Christian faith, going all the way back, well, of course, it's in the Bible, <coughs> is the doctrine of original sin. It's really the doctrine we just taught last time, that uh, in Adam's sin, things were uh, permanently and in a certain sense irreparably uh, broken. Uh, and that, that his sin caused all of us, all of humanity, to uh, be in sin. Um, and that's, that's actually a, uh, one of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. If, apart from that doctrine of original sin, you really can't have the Christian faith, at least not in its full force. And what we're going to talk about to begin with here is a sort of history of how people have messed with that uh, and recovered that from time to time. <clears throat> if you were to read the Roman Catholic Catechism, this idea goes all the way back to uh, Augustine in the, what, third or fourth century, something like that, fourth century, I guess. And uh, Augustine, of course, was one of the main reference points historically for the Protestant Reformation as well. Um, and in fact, if you pay much attention to Martin Luther, you would find out that his, his the, the theological roots are something like aimed at recovering Augustinian theology, um, which he regarded the Catholic tradition to have lost over the course of history. But in any case, <clears throat> I wanted to start by uh, reading, just reading some of these scriptures where the doctrine of original sin is found. The first is in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin's not counted where there's no law. That means really sin is not, we don't recognize sin if we don't see a law. Um, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. That's a reference to Christ, by the way. Uh, so we might think, well, how is Adam a type of Christ? And the answer to that question is something like, Adam was the first first man, and Christ is the new first man. Uh, anyway, uh, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died, if many died through one man's trespass, that is a very interesting statement. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That is an important statement. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one uh, uh, act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You might at this point pause and ask this question. How were you made a sinner? The answer, the biblical answer to that question is by the one man's disobedience. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, is in, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you can see that in this text there's a comparison of the one act of Adam and the act of Christ, you know. So in Adam we fall and in Christ we're redeemed. Um, and there's a, there's a technical term we would use for the uh, God's act as judge and it's a term we call imputation and this is showing that the sin of Adam is imputed to all of us in the same way the righteousness of Christ is imputed to all who believe so there's a there's a headship and this doctrine is sometime we'll talk a little more about this later is called the, the doctrine of federal headship and so Adam is the representative head of humanity uh, in sin, and Christ is the representative head of humanity in Christ, uh, redeemed from sin by his acts of righteousness. Uh, well, so in any case, the, the key statements here are like this one in verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So my condemnation is the, the, the result of Adam's trespass. Now for many people for a long time that hardly seems fair. So one of, one, one of the things we're going to try to show is how that actually occurs. And maybe see that it's not unfair. Also, well, there's a lot of answers to this question. That's what we're going to talk about. Um, they use the word man versus child because the child is okay until he's 10? Um, we, well, I'm not sure just using the word man would get us there, but yeah, we could... In, and in some cases, we uh, we might 
work uh, on a biblical basis, though kind of a sketchy one, to uh, some idea of the salvation of uh, unbelieving infants or even other people who have no capacity to exercise some kind of conscious faith in Christ. I think you could make a pretty good case and argument for God applying the sacrifice of Christ to those people uh, apart from from them exercising some kind of conscious faith. I don't think we could say from Scripture, because a person is a certain age or of a certain consciousness, they are therefore not sinners. Though we're going to read about, or we're going to talk about some folks who would say that. In fact, they wouldn't just say that about children. They'd say that, well, they'd say about that about all of us when we're born. So, um, <clears throat> what, we are, what we want to show from this scripture, though, is our sin problem is uh, not a problem of the fact that we commit sins. In other words, I'm not a sinner because I committed some sins. I'm a sinner because I come from Adam. And because I'm a sinner, I commit sins. So the that I for me it's really hard to read Romans 5 and draw any other conclusion. I mean, it's very explicit. Many died through one man's trespass. He says something like that repeatedly. Uh, He says, One trespass led to condemnation for all men. One man's disobedience made many sinners. So Adam's disobedience is what made me a sinner. Um, Okay. So, let's talk about some historical theology. We're going to talk about the Pelagians. Pelagians, that's a group of people who followed a man whose name was Pelagius. Pelagius was the theological adversary to Augustine. The Augustine we were just talking about a minute ago. And Augustine was defending the Orthodox Christian faith, the historical Christian faith that goes all the way back into the Bible, Pelagius couldn't stand the idea of original sin. And he would say something like this, well, if God gives you a command, the law is given by God, it is implicit in the giving of the law, the capacity to obey the law. In other words, you always have a choice. Well, we wouldn't disagree entirely with that. Uh, Augustine wouldn't disagree entirely with that. You do choose. But uh, there's a sort of elevation to a beyond the Christian faith concept of the free will of humanity in Pelagius thinking. So he would say this, it would be unjust for what Romans 5 says is unjust. Or 
I guess Pelagius would have to say what you have always said, Romans 5 says. He's not going to, he's going to say either it's wrong or it doesn't say that. It wouldn't be right for anyone to blame anyone for anyone else's sins. So he says there's no, there is no original sin. Adam's sin has no direct effect on Adam's descendants. That's the beginning point of the argument. Yeah, People are like the results of the sin. I mean, there is a result, and you can't yeah, deny that. Yeah, and we're going to see that. Okay. Uh, so Pelagius says there's no such thing as inherited sinfulness. You are born innocent, and you are not a sinner until you commit a sin. So people are not born with a corrupted nature. And they are able not to sin apart from any special grace. Now, as we mentioned, that's a sort of elevated concept of free will. Uh, So a person, in theory at least, could be born and perfectly obey the law of God and never be lost. So that person wouldn't need to be saved. Now, Pelagius wasn't so bold as to claim that had ever happened. So what he would say is, however, everyone's, all of us humans are born into some kind of... uh, corrupt society and we're basically trained to be sinners from the day we're born and so without exception everyone does sin well that fits with say Romans 3 which says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God so he's still getting to everyone's lost and needs to be saved but uh, he's not saying you sin because you're a sinner He's saying you're a sinner because you have committed sins. Now, Augustine uh, said that won't do. And so there's a the big fight of the age in theology was between Augustine and the Pelagians. And Augustine is saying you can't corrupt this doctrine of original sin. And besides, you have to say a lot of things the Bible says the opposite of in order to do that. So the next people on our list, and they're only next because in terms of the logic of our argument here, I'd I'd really rather put them third because this is, in my view, the orthodox biblical perspective. Uh, But they come second in this list before the Arminians uh, because the... Augustinian reformers uh, come first in history. And the Arminians are a response to that. So, uh, I don't know how much of this history you know, but Martin Luther came along and, you know, he had his, he basically established the Lutheran Church. The Lutheran Church has a very Augustinian uh, point of view, Lutheran theology since the very beginning, has a very Augustinian point of view about original sin. 
And uh, <clears throat> by the way, that really doesn't differ at all from the Roman Catholic view of original sin when the Roman Catholics state their view clearly. Uh, the problem that the Reformers had was the Roman Catholics state this problem of original sin uh, and then they mess up when it comes to how does salvation from that work. So, But anyway, we don't really need to talk about that too much other than to say this goes all the way back to Augustine and is the teaching of the church all the way from the beginning, uh, this doctrine of original sin. So here's what these guys say. This would be Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, you know, all those guys. Uh, until we get to Arminius and his followers. Uh, so they would say Adam's corrupt nature is passed to his descendants. So Adam and Eve are in some way permanently broken and their descendants are broken in the same way. Uh, Adam's guilt is imputed to his descendants. So there's a sense, you know, you might have noticed it says, in Adam all sinned. There's a sense in which we were present when Adam sinned. Uh, So Adam's guilt falls on us. Now, there were two main ways of getting there. The first is what we call seminalism, which means just what I just said. And this is really the traditional Roman Catholic view that it's basically genetic. So when Adam and Eve have children, those children are infected with the disease of sin uh, because they are part and parcel to Adam and Eve. We're present in Adam. They're even worse than Adam and Eve. Well, one in terms... One killed the other. <laughs> well, one brother okay. killed another brother. Well, and I'm talking about all the way down to us. So not just the two of them. Um, but they're infected with sin. Uh, so, and they inherited that from their parents in some seminal sense. Uh, so this this model says all humanity was actually present in Adam and participated that way in his sin. Okay, so that's a way of saying, oh, so I can be judged for what Adam did because I'm just part of Adam. We're all just one little part of Adam. The uh, second way is federalism, and this is more the way of the Calvinists. Uh, Federalism says in Adam and then in Christ, what you have is a representative head. And so we're, uh, we fall because our head fell. Uh, So there's a guilty verdict against him that is applied to everyone. So it's a little less genetic. Um, Now, we're going to come back to, uh, we're going to refine, and we're going to see something that's maybe somewhere in between those two ways 
Uh, and uh, I think this will all sort of get clear at the end. That's what I'm hoping for anyway. The third group of people is the Armenians. Now the Armenians, by the way, this, the argument, uh, this argument all took place in Holland uh, in the post-Calvin days. And uh, this is how we get the uh, five points of Calvinism. I don't know if you're familiar with the five points of Calvinism, the tulip, uh, because there were five points made by the Arminians. And the Calvinists said, no, <laughs> this is called the remonstrance, uh, where they said, no, that's not right. And they said, stated their five counters and that's where now we know that now people know the five points of Calvinism uh, most of us don't know that there were five points of Arminianism first but anyway that's when this argument happened um, so the Arminians uh, wanted to hedge these things and there's a natural human impulse to hedge these things um, and so they, where the Calvinists say, no, there's a total depravity in all humanity, the Arminians say, uh, not quite total. Uh, when the uh, <clears throat> Calvinists say there's an unconditional election, the Arminians say there's something like a provisional election. And all of this revolves around how strong a sense of freedom, of, of free will, do you want to maintain in humanity as opposed to God's sovereignty. So we all feel like we got to, well, if God's absolutely sovereign, then we don't have any freedom, and so we can't be responsible. And there's always this tension by the way, this tension exists even if you don't have any theology, but there's always a tension between something you'd call determinism and something you'd call uh, free agency. We can't escape this tension. This tension is present in the universe, apparently. Uh, and that it's because of this uh, where there's always a temptation. This is Pelagius's problem. He says, look, if you don't have the freedom to obey, there's no sense giving you the commandment. <laughs> now, the scripture has an answer to that. The scripture's answer to that is, commandment is given so that you will see that you don't have the capacity to obey. <laughs> That's a very clear statement of the scripture. Uh, your problem is, you don't have the capacity to obey, and you don't even know you need to. So God gives the law in order to show the existence of your sinfulness. But anyway, uh, here's what the Arminians said. Well, they're, they're uh, sometimes we would say semi-Pelagian. <laughs> in other words, they're going to find an in-between spot between Augustine and Pelagius. And they're going to say, well, Adam's corrupt nature is passed on to his descendants, but not his guilt sounds fair. It does sound very fair. <laughs> and that's why they say it, isn't it? So he's saying, and then uh, the third element here is really comes from mostly from Wesley, so it's actually quite a bit later. 
and that is the idea of some prevenient grace. In other words, there's some grace from the cross that applies to all humanity, whether they believe or not. And it, what that grace provides is the capacity to believe. <laughs> so that the choice is yours. And you can or might not exercise that freedom according to your own wisdom. Sounds very fair. <clears throat> However, there's a problem. If, uh, especially we get hung here on the third point, if we were to read Romans chapter 3, for example, or John 6. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, no one seeks God. Not even one. No one's righteous. No one's looking. Martin Luther, who is clearly in the Augustinian side of this, said, uh, the only place you can find God is the last place anyone would look. And that's on the cross. Nor Martin Luther would press this. He'd say there's nothing that seems good to anyone in God. In other words, if you saw God, you would not recognize him as good. Why? Well, because the only place you can see him is on a cross, which is a place reserved for criminals. The, there's a, he call it, this is a distinction between the theology of glory, which he said was the theology of the Roman church, and the theology of the cross. In other words, in the theology of glory, we climb up to God, which we're perfectly capable of doing. In, and the problem with the cross is, we're not looking that way. And if we were to see God on the cross, we would say, oh, well, that can't be God. There's nothing we count as good in our fallen condition in God or Christ. Uh, and that's really what, that's the message pretty well exposited of Romans chapter 3. Well, it's really the message of Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, the very point of which is to get us all utterly lost. Scripture in that case is, Paul is saying, look, it doesn't matter who you are, every last one of us turns away from God. And I think you could say by the time you get to chapter 5 of Romans, you could answer the question, when did we turn away from God? And the answer is, when Adam turned away from God. Uh, <clears throat> the other, another scripture, by the way, you wouldn't have a hard time finding scriptures to this effect. Uh, John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And there's a, in the, in the Greek text, there's the usage of the word dunamis. The, the, that word, it's literally, in English it sounds too simple. 
we really should translate it, no one has the ability to come to me. Unless the Father acts with special grace. Now, I'm pretty sure Wesley would want to say, well, God acts that way for everyone, but there's nothing in the scripture that indicates that. The, the, this concept of prevenient grace is, is not, uh, it's just not explicitly supported by the Bible. Uh, now, by the way, every theological system has some of that in it. <laughs> you know, there's not, it's not like you, every, all of the finest points of uh, anyone's theological system find some explicit statement in scripture. There's always some gap filling required. But here, the gap filling is huge. I mean, it is like the critical factor. Now, we would say there's not a prevenient grace, there's a special grace on the part of anyone who actually ultimately believes. God has specifically acted in the life of that person in the grace of the conviction of the Holy Spirit to lead that person to faith. So this is Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you've been saved through faith. That, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Or say 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where God, uh, the, the Spirit opens the eyes of the otherwise blind sinner to see the glory of the cross. Uh, anyway, so uh, obviously the, the reformer, the Augustinian reformers, had a problem with this logic. I, I guess it's pretty clear by this point I have the same problem. The the Arminian logic is extremely appealing, but it's really hard to support from Scripture. But also the, the first two items hmm. about corrupt nature and uh, is passed to his descendants and Adam's guilt is not. Because mm -hmm. I read this separate from the third uh, uh, item. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, we we uh, we would argue with the with uh, really the only question is uh, item number two here because we wouldn't dispute that Adam's corrupt nature is passed to his descendants, mm -hmm. but his guilt is is right here in Romans five. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Yeah, so that's in the results. Adam, that's the result, but. It's, well, it's the same with teamwork. If one of my teammates makes a mistake, uh, he is guilty on that mistake, but right. the whole team is uh, facing the consequences. Right. And the but the the statement in Adam all sinned um, is the is a statement of guilt. So there's a there's an imputed condemnation. And the and if Adam's if if Adam's guilt is not imputed, how is the condemnation just? 
In, in other words, if God's condemning an un, someone who's not guilty, that would that would also be some kind of violation of justice. So to say, uh, as one trespass led to condemnation, uh, well, here he says, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Uh, So, still, I think I would be just for my own sins and not for Adam's sins. So, let's see how this works. Yeah, okay. So, now we're at the bottom of the page here. Alienation, depravity, and original sin. One one question. Mm -hmm. Depravity? How do you pronounce it? Depravity. What is it? Sorry. Depravity is uh, the word we would use for uh, our uh, disability in sin. Uh, In other words, um, the... When when I when I say the word depravity, I mean I am not able to remedy my sinful condition. Okay, so that's kind of a technical term when you use it in theology. Because yeah. it's just general speech. If we say a really depraved, we mean it's just a really awful person. But right. But this is a little more. Yeah, it's it's a little more about how completely defeated by sin we are so that we could be called dead in sin so this is Ephesians chapter 2 if you are dead in your trespasses and sins well that has to do with that that's a statement of what could you do about it there's nothing you are able to do it You, you don't even know you have the problem you're not able to correct or even diagnose your own sinfulness. So that's that's what we mean by depravity. The, this word in English, I think, is partly what Brad is getting at as well, uh, also refers to sin run amok. You know, so we'd say, wow, that guy is depraved, and that means he's as sinful as sinful could be. You know, he's a particularly horrible sinner. And in in this theology conversation, we don't mean that. We don't mean everyone's as bad as they could possibly be. We just mean everyone's bad and can't do anything about it on their own. So, and that concept, by the way, the concept of depravity is really at the heart of the argument I'm about to give you. Okay? So, Number one, Adam's sin alienated humanity from God. This is a relational disruption. This is what Paul's talking to talking about when he says, "Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin." So we died with Adam uh, when Adam became alienated from God. Adam and Eve are alienated from God. Now, all of Adam and Eve's children are born in the land of alienated from God. Uh, Adam's children, this is number two, are born in alienation. 
that is already dead, outside the garden, cut off from God. This uh, is the language of uh, Ephesians chapter 2 also, when uh, Paul uses the expression, without God in the world, as, a, as the nature of uh, the unbelieving humanity. Cut off from God. Now, by the time we are born, the sentence has been carried out, we are born under it. This is a status, not a nature. In other words, it's as though our parents were criminals and they got thrown into prison. And then where were we born? In prison. Uh, true righteousness, all real righteousness begins in faithful fellowship with God. That is what we learned already in last time. All real righteousness is the expression of God. That's very important. But because we're not walking in fellowship with God, we're not capable of producing that kind of righteousness. We're capable of telling the truth or refraining from stealing on any given day. But we are not capable of telling the truth as an expression of our fellowship with God because we don't have any fellowship with God. Because we were born in alienation from God. So we are unable to produce true righteousness. So when the Bible says, no one is righteous, and then goes on to say, uh, even our righteousness doesn't count, which we'll talk about in a second. Righteousness in quotes, probably. Well, and I would say even uh, explicit obedience to the law of God, right. when we obey the law of God apart from fellowship with God, we are not actually producing actual righteousness. We're behaving righteously, but that is self-righteousness and therefore not righteous. So yeah, it fails on that scale. So uh, this is what we mean by depravity, when we are unable to produce righteousness because we don't have any faithful fellowship with God, that's, that's what we mean by depravity. Alienation produces corruption. Okay? So defining righteousness, that's what the law does, doesn't help. Except to show us the problem. And the Bible explicitly says this is the reason God gives the law. To make sin known. To bring about the conviction of sin. So, uh, and, you know, you read Romans chapter 7. Paul says, yeah, and God gives you the law and that makes it harder to do right. Because now you know how to, now you've been educated about how to do wrong more effectively. So the giving of the law actually increases my disobedience to the law 
And at the same time, my awareness of my inability to obey. Ignorance is no longer bless. Sorry? Ignorance is no longer bless. Well, and I can't say I'm ignorant anymore, right? Because now I've been informed. Now God's told me this is the standard. And I find myself, because I know the standard, tempted to sin in fresh new ways that I hadn't thought of before. This is Romans 7. And uh, the explicit statement of Paul in various places in Romans and Galatians in particular is, the law is given for this very purpose, to, con to convict, to give the knowledge of sin. <clears throat> so, so, just telling me how to behave righteously doesn't, doesn't help me. That's what the law does. So number four, our independent works of righteousness are counterfeit because they are independent, not because they're not obedient. And here's what I mean, independent, not grounded in fellowship with God, bearing his image, but declarations of self. In other words, the very nature of Adam and Eve's turn was to say, we'll do it ourselves. If you read uh, the story of the Tower of Babel, we'll make a name for ourselves. It's about the demonstration of my own image. It's, a, it's essential idolatry. It's what Romans 1 is talking about when it says they exchanged the glory of, the, of God for the creature themselves. <clears throat> um, so our independent works of righteousness are counterfeit because they are independent even when the works themselves are righteous. This is what Isaiah 64 6 says when it says even our righteousnesses are filthy rags. It doesn't mean to say that they're not righteousnesses. Uh, it means to say they're corrupted righteousnesses. Uh, so if we think the law, if we try to relate to God by means of the law, what we're trying to do is justify myself, myself. And that's the problem. Because it doesn't recognize that at the heart of the problem is this divorce we got ourselves from God way back in the garden. And that, according to scripture, is a problem where we can't even recognize. Apart from the special grace of God by the operation of the Spirit in an individual. So the only solution to this problem is reconciliation to God. And the only way we would care about that is if it had already happened. We're, we're alienated from God and it, doesn't bother, it does not trouble us. <laughs> we're happy to be alienated from God unless God acts for us. So uh, if you see the catch 22 here, right? The thing I need is to be reconciled to God. And the only way I would ever see that this is the thing I need is if it had already happened. 
the only way a person cares about reconciliation to God is they're already reconciled to God. We're stuck. We're stuck, stuck. So, Romans chapter 3 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Now, notice he doesn't say no one seeks to do the right thing. This is personal. It's not about obedience to God's standards. It's about fellowship with God. All have turned aside. Together they've become become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's uh, snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Um, And we need to stop and say, now who is they? Everyone. No one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Uh, and that's what we're talking about. Our God seeking isn't real. It's not God we want, but God's approval for our righteousness, which we produced apart from God and His provision. The religious way, the what Martin Luther called the theology of glory, is I climb up to him. And he respects that. Uh, the the uh, that's, that's saying, look, it's about me and what I can do. God honors what I do. <clears throat> It's a theology of glory. The actual theology is the theology of the cross, which recognizes that that approach is corrupt from the very beginning. It's, it's based on some, an idolatry of self. And so all these righteous things I'm doing to climb my way up to God are polluted by that alienation. Um, so it's not God we want but God's approval for our righteousness apart from God and his provision we don't want to recognize God we want God to recognize us even when we try to please God we are rebelling against God now it's in this way (laughs) that I would argue This is how original sin operates. It's in our status 
of alienation that original sin operates. It's because it's really an inheritance of depravity. In other words, I'm born disabled. And part of my disability is an, in my capacity to recognize my own disability. I'm quite stuck. I'm utterly stuck. I'm so stuck, the Bible uses the word dead for all humanity. Dead in trespasses and sins. Now, what I think we can see here is uh, we're, we're kind of stepping a little outside of this old argument between the Arminians and the Calvinists a little bit. Now, I think you'd call this point of view way more Calvinistic than Arminian, but uh, what we're saying is the real problem is Adam and Eve separated the whole human race from fellowship with God. And it is only, I'm only actually a live human being in fellowship with God. So I'm dead. And because I'm dead, I produce dead works. Even my good deeds are dead works. And I can't buy you know, the accumulation of even actually good deeds earn God's respect because God does not respect independence from God. God does not respect good deeds that don't come from Him, ultimately. And God does not respect good deeds that violate the nature of humanity to bear his image. If I'm over here bearing my own image, I'm not getting anywhere with God. But what where we have this where we have the operation of original sin is in that alienation. So because I was because Adam alienated us all from God I'm in this stuck position. In Adam, I became a sinner. I became a person who can't produce the sort of righteousness God requires, which is the sort of righteousness God produces through me. I can still do the right thing from time to time. I might even do the right thing most of the time, but I'm, I'm operating independently and that is the very essence of sinfulness. So, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Not the solution. The law gives us some awareness of the problem. But it does not solve it and was never intended to. So when Pelagius says, well, God can't command you to do something unless you have the ability to do it, there's a certain sense in which, well, yeah, you could do it. But the point of giving all this law is to show that in the end, 
It's not about you doing it. So <clears throat> here I think we're somewhere in the middle of all that other stuff that came the, between the Augustinian reformers and the Arminians. And the key here is the operation of depravity. So what we see is, <clears throat> because I'm separated from fellowship with God, I'm lost. And I'm not able to produce righteousness. I need to be reconciled to God, which is the very thing I don't recognize. Stuck. So the solution then is a solution of entire grace. We could just be stuck and that would be that. And it would be no injustice if God just left us all stuck. <clears throat> but he doesn't. Uh, so I think next time we're going to start to look at, uh, you know, the operation or the, re the restoration of the image of God that, well, it's really the estimate, the right, the restoration of the likeness <clears throat> where we uh, reconnect to God and therefore uh, are restored spiritually to uh, something like righteousness. Hmm. I think that's all. Any more question, discussion? What do we... What, uh, I'm, uh, there's a lot of technicality here I'm afraid and I, so I, I just want to clarify whatever anyone might want to have clarified. Well, it's very interesting um, and I don't think we, we really need to know the exact answer of who these three groups is mm. correct mm -hmm. or not. Uh, I think uh, at the end we all know that we have sinned and that we mm -hmm. need reconciliation by the blood of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Well, that's so, true. Yes. <coughs> mm -hmm. Because it's very interesting, and I think we could talk uh, a lot about uh, these, these stands of Minions and uh, Augustinian reformers. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think at the end the result is, uh, differs so much. I mean, the effect ah. the result we have to deal with and that's why we need Jesus Christ for reconciliation. Yeah, I think the difference in, in any kind of practical sense, it sort of boils down to, uh, it, 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 has, uh, it gets reflected in a certain degree in uh, how uh, we might proceed in communicating the gospel. Uh, in a in very particular way. So in some cases, you might think, well, communicating the gospel is pointless for a Calvinist because God's just going to save whoever he's going to save and doesn't really need your help to do it. And there was actually been Calvinists who said stuff like that, you know. So when William Carey proposed that he go on a giant mission trip to India. They said, look, if God wanted those Indians saved, he could do it without your help. 
<laughs> you know, somebody actually said that to him. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, in in the other direction with the Armenians, we we can say, well, it's up to them, and we end up communicating something that doesn't glorify God if my salvation is up to me. And so uh, we have problems going any which way. And one of the things I find helpful about the, the idea of talking about sin as an alienation and death, really death as an alienation and sin as the natural consequence of that is it, it, I think it, for me, it resolves some of these issues to say, well, it's not up to me, and yet I have decisions to make. We're, we somehow have uh, to respect both God's utter sovereignty and salvation. God saves who he chooses to be saved, and our own free agency. I'm saved by grace through faith, and that's a faith I exercise. And now I reckon those things are, that's a difficult thing. We, there's, and certainly we wouldn't claim to have resolved it. But to be a biblical Christian requires the respect of both of those things. And so for me, uh, I can still think about how I might relate to the scripture as law and develop a religion that, in which I climb my way up to God, even if that religion is, I'm going to independently believe in Jesus. Well, you can't independently believe in Jesus. No one's inclined to believe in Jesus uh, unless the Spirit of God operates in that person. So anyway, this is all kind of theologically helpful for me. Uh, and what we're talking about in this course is how, what does it mean when we say we're fallen? How fallen are we? And part of the discussion among the, you know, these three groups of people is just how desperate is the condition. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm this, this concept of, of I'm alienated from God and it is for that reason I am a sinner. I was moved into the category of sinner by Adam. And all that means is I'm I don't have the fellowship with God required to do anything that ultimately pleases God. And so this operation of original sin. Now, we might ask the question, why do we need a doctrine of original sin? And the answer to that question is, uh, there's, if, if there's no problem, there's no need for the solution. Um, so, like, if you read the Catholic stuff about this, it's all about how, well, if you don't, and it's with reference to Augustine, really, and it's entirely about how if, if there's no doctrine of original sin, there's no need for a savior. 
It's the argument of Galatians 2, where Paul concludes by saying, if, if you can be justified by your own obedience, then Christ died for no reason. Um, so in some sense, that is in play in this whole conversation as well. I hope it's not <coughs> too esoteric, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, it, it actually boils down. <clears throat> Can you imagine God sitting up there and he's looking at these different people tearing this thing this way, tearing it that way. None of them have got it exactly right. There's another thing that has to be done. But they all got the idea that I am right in doing this. And it all boils down to simplicity. As, as Jesus said, you, know, you have to have faith like this little child. And you can't get into all of this theory and everything and get it right. So why bother with it? Why not just take it as it is and say, this is what I believe and this is where I'm going to go. Take what as it is, though? Uh, I mean, you don't know what it is if you don't do all this. We're talking about salvation. There's only one way to get salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you mean when you use the word salvation? Saved. From? From sin. And what is sin? Sin is something you don't want. All, all I'm trying to demonstrate is you cannot avoid this. No. You can't. You, when you you're born, you're in the paint bucket. No, I, that's not what I mean. You can't avoid the difficult, in depth conversation. Because we're talking about what is, if, if I need salvation, then I have to say salvation from what? And then I have to have a conversation about Adam and Eve falling into sin. And I have to then say, well, what do you mean by sin? And I mean something specific. And if my, if my problem is I need fellowship with God and I don't have it, then I need to say that's my problem. And so I, all I'm trying to point out is we don't get anywhere by just saying, oh, well, then we don't need to have that conversation. No, you can't avoid these kind of conversations. Yeah, but how many people are saved that never had this conversation? Uh, well, I assume most of them. Yeah. Because, uh, <laughs> because we're, there's only 10 people in this room, and we just have this guy. We're the only ones that have this conversation. But everyone who's saved has to come to some understanding of what sin and judgment are. You, ha- you have to have some idea of. God is righteous and I'm not. Or you don't need a savior. Uh, Billy Graham used to say, uh, the first thing I need to do to get someone saved is get them lost. So if if, if I don't know what lost means, or even if I just have the wrong idea of what lost means, I could miss the salvation. I... So if I, if, for example, if I don't think there's a judgment of sin, why do I need to be saved from it? So as soon as you start talking about these things, you're going to have to keep talking about these things. And I don't know if you have the right answer. I mean, well, of course you can. I just gave you the right answer. <laughs> I'm, and I'm, I'm serious. I'm, you, you can get to the right answer partly by having the argument. 
In fact, it's from the very beginning throughout the history of the church. The way we figure out what the Bible says is someone comes along and says something that it doesn't. And then we have to have an argument and we get weird, esoteric, detailed, deep discussions and that produces the correct doctrine of the church. So uh, we have to trust that the word of God can be understood by people who are operating in the spirit and in the fellowship of the body. So it's a... it were simple, we wouldn't have needed centuries of theologians. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Theologians, the world would be here's, here's the thing. It is simple. <laughs> it is. It is extremely yeah. simple. And so I respect <laughs> that idea. At the same time, it is extremely simple, but it is not shallow. It can go as far as you care to go in it. Now, I appreciate it, Bob. You might say, okay, I don't need I didn't need to go that deep. Alright. That's that's cool. But somebody does. So in my own mind, this stuff this this problem of original sin is a serious problem. How does God call himself just? and categorize all humanity as sinners based on the actions of the first man. And that's what the scripture clearly says God does. How does he get away with that? Well, that's a good question to answer. And uh, how did we how, how did this how did this happen that we all moved from righteous image of God bearing people to unrighteous sinners this understanding helps me figure and by the way I'm I wouldn't this understanding comes from understanding just exactly what sin is what happened with Adam and Eve is how we get here what happened with them is they decided to go on their own. This is the basic nature of sin, deciding to go on your own. And they decided that for all of us. So when we start, we're operating on our own. And because we're operating on our own, we can't figure anything this, any of this out except apart from the Word and the Spirit. So, okay, well that... That makes sense. When I tell someone that they are a sinner, what do I mean? They're separated from God. They're apart from God. You know, I mean, they think you're saved. You don't approve of some things they do. Right. They say, hey, that's relative. I could go to another country and they prove a different thing. So this mm. totally cuts across. across, which is why I think it's so... That, that's a good point. I like that. That the problem of sin is I've, I've been isolated from the source of life, God. The reason I behave badly is because I've been, I've been unplugged. I don't have the power that 
a full-on human being, an unbroken, unalienated human being would have. Could you say you've been unplugged when you really never were plugged until you got to believe in Jesus? Right. You were unplugged when you were born. I was already unplugged. Adam pulled the plug. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 a pretty I like that's a good illustration of what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Adam pulled the plug. So uh, the thing God the thing that God has a problem with is not just that we behave badly, not just that we break all these rules He made, or you know some uh, something like that, but that we've gone without him when we were made to live with him that sounds like Sunday sermon it, it is like Sunday sermon coming up. we're made to live with him and the problem is we decided to go without him uh, and so this isn't all the other thing I, this helps me with in the whole preaching the gospel thing is I don't have to exercise my own petty judgments about other people. I'm just as disabled as anyone. The only question is, have we received the reconciliation that Christ provides and therefore plugged in again? And so I don't have to look down on your sin. I also don't have to, I also don't think I can look down on anyone because there's nothing of, there's no merit ever, except the merit of Christ. So I, I, you know, so I'm not. I don't need to say, well, look, you did this and this and this, and those things that you did are the things God hates. I, I can say those things are the simply the evidence that. You, you have this disability that I'm talking about. And we all do. Anyway, what else we got? <laughs> all right, let me pray. Father, thanks for getting us together today. Lord, help us to uh, uh, understand these things and uh, in whatever way you can use them in our lives. I pray that you would do that. Lord, uh, we just thank you for your word that you did not leave us alone in our lost condition, but that you uh, came and became God with us. You paid the penalty. You satisfied your own justice in Christ for us and that in him we are reconciled and we do now have the opportunity and the resources to uh, demonstrate your love and grace to the people around us. Help these things in each of our lives and in the life of this church, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.